And I know some of you have seen that video a few times, and we used it just a few weeks ago. We've been in this, when we launched this series, and we've been in the series now, uh, talking about the church and talking specifically about this church that you're sitting in this morning at Faith Community. And um, we started this back in January, and we've been talking about how to stay on track as a local church. And if you call Faith Community home, um, I hope these last few weeks have been a good reminder for you. Um, maybe you, it's helped bring some things back into focus. If you're new here, you're still checking this out. You came at someone's invitation. You're not quite sure. You're thinking about jumping in with both feet. Um, I hope it's helped to show you uh, what we're all about and what we want to be true of us. In January, just a little review real quickly, so hold on. In January, we t- started off talking about membership and what that means at Faith Community. And we talked uh, through our membership covenant, and we said that because Everybody comes to church with an expectation. We want to be real clear about what the expectations are. Uh, And then we talked about the concentric circles. And uh, you probably may, after 20 years, be tired of seeing these things. But you remember seeing the concentric circles? Do you remember giving a little bit of thought to that and figuring out where you land on this one? We talked about the different uh, characteristics and, and the pathways, the bridges from one circle to the next. So we gave you this visual to help you kind of identify where you are in relation to your church. Uh, We talked about some things that we have to do. We talked about how easy it is for secondary things to become primary things in any local church. Then part three, we talked about our core values. We narrowed our list down to 11 core values. I tried to get it to 10 because that's a nice round number, but we just couldn't get there. So we stopped. We settled on 11 core values. We talked about our mission as we find it in the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, and we spent some time breaking down our mission statement uh, that we've adopted as a church, which is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ for the good of our community and the sake of the world. In part five, we talked about the discipleship dilemma, which is this idea that becoming a child of God costs you nothing, but becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ could cost you a great deal. And we looked at the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, where he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. In part six, we talked about volunteerism. We said that every churchgoer has a decision to make. You've got a choice to make. You, you, you can park in your usual spot in the parking lot. You can make your way to a comfortable seat in your favorite row. You can listen to some, uh, you know, maybe occasionally a good sermon, sing some songs. You can chat with some friends, and then you can go home, and you can repeat that every Sunday morning. That choice makes for a nice, safe Sunday morning experience. Or you can throw yourself into an adventure and roll up your sleeves and join a team of like-minded people who are servants and help build the local church that God has called you to be a part of. So we have a choice to make. And we looked at the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet in John chapter 13, and we said that Jesus has called each of us to drape a serving towel over our arms. That's his call to us. So in the last time, in part 7, we looked at the parables of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15, and we talked about what we call the invest and invite strategy. That is, to invest uh, a slice of our lives into lost people, uh, people who don't have a living relationship with their Heavenly Father, with the intention of bringing them along, bringing, being a part of that process in their life. Maybe we take them from a 2 to a 3 or from a 4 to a 7, but maybe helping be a part of the process where, that brings them along to where they can hear the gospel and they begin to understand that what God wants for them and how to have the kind of relationship that God wants to have with them. That's where we've been. There are always things in the life of the church that Pastor Bob and I wish we could just kind of press an easy button and everybody would just automatically experience it. Uh, For instance, I wish that all of you could experience what it is to pour your life into 
the life of a child in our children's ministries and to sit with them in their small groups on the floor and then to see them in time follow Jesus and get baptized and, and know that you had a part of that. I mean, when we do these baptism videos, how cool would it be for somebody to thank you for your part in this process? I wish you could experience that. I wish all of you could experience what some of us got to experience last fall and, and a couple of years before that on our mission to Guatemala to serve people who have next to nothing, I mean, certainly compared to what we have, who are needy and yet so grateful. I wish all of you could share in the experience that Alethea and I have had in hosting and leading a small group for over 20 years in our home to grapple with questions and tough passages of Scripture and biblical principles that are sometimes hard to live out and to implement and to walk with our friends through tough times and to celebrate with them in the good times. I, I wish we could all experience that. I wish we could all be open-handed to God with everything that we possess. I wish we had a church full of people whose possessions did not possess them. Can you imagine the wave of generosity that would sweep over our community and the impact that would make? Those are some of my wishes. The thing I want to talk about today, though, if I could just push the easy button. One of the things that would be true of all of us then would be that all of us would be in some sort of intentional biblical community. Some sort of intentional, maybe even structured biblical community with other followers of Jesus, doing life together, so that as things come along, good things, bad things, things to celebrate, things to encourage each other through, I would love to be able to just push a button and place all of you in the meaningful relationships with other believers. And over the years at Faith Community, we've created and experimented with all kinds of environments. We've had small groups and homes. We've had men's ministries and women's ministries and 20s and 30s ministries and, and all kinds of environments uh, where we can get smaller than we are on Sunday. Uh, because I'm convinced that as great as Sunday morning is, and, and we put a lot of emphasis on this setting. Some weeks it's more evident than others, but we do put a lot of thought into this environment. Your pastors and the worship band and the children's ministry leaders put a lot of preparation into this Sunday morning experience. And as important as this is, and as great as we believe this environment can be, the truth is we're still convinced here that circles are better than rows. Circles are better than rows. Let me me just... I know you're thinking that through and you've heard it before, but you're like, I don't, uh, you're so convinced, I'm not sure I am. I think it would help if you actually said the words. So just play along with me here because you know I love to, when I sit in a crowd, I love to be manipulated by the speaker. So I thought I would just invite you. Uh, So if you're comfortable with that, can you read that with me? Circles are better than rows. Thanks for humoring me. Face Face to face, let me just tell you, it's better than all your faces looking at me. With all due respect. I'm convinced of it, though, because that's the kind of setting where, where I've seen growth happen. That's the kind of setting where I've experienced my own growth and, and where, where we get a real sense of deep belonging and a sense that you are known and where you get the best spiritual care. So today, I want to talk about one of the primary reasons why meaningful relationships that are Uh, kind of the designed and desired product of smaller environments, why this is so important. And um, this is how we're wrapping up this series on the church and staying on track. So you're wondering, how can I implement, how can I put into practice some of the things we've been talking about for the last three or four months? It kind of all comes down to this. And as we turn the corner into the spring, which we did this week, I'm pretty sure, uh, we're going to take some steps into exploring what's possible in our small group environments and what kind of small group environments we might be able to offer, not in the distant future, but right away. 
That's kind of where we're poised and ready to roll. I want to take some time this morning to give you one reason, because I give you a whole lot more, but today I want to give you one reason why we're convinced and why I'm convinced that these environments are important. And then we're going to give you an opportunity to kind of express what your small group connection needs are and what kind of group you'd like to connect with and what your availability is and what role you'd like to play and how often you'd like to meet and so on. Because what if, what if we could create environments where real relationships with God and with each other could grow every time we gather? What if all kinds of people could gather in these environments to hear inspiring stories and engage in conversation on a regular basis? What if we gathered with one another to, to discuss topics that were relevant to our lives, spends lots of times in guided conversation and saturated in scripture and experience a spiritual aha moment that connects God to our everyday lives? What if? So the compelling reason for these kinds of environments and the teaching that I want to kind of get into today comes from something Jesus said. And this is not a passage that I've ever seen on a bumper sticker or on a calendar or on a Facebook meme. This isn't really happy, cheerful stuff. But these are the words of Jesus, and this is where we're going to start. A couple weeks ago, we were in Luke 15. We're just going to jump ahead a couple chapters to Luke 17. And before we go any further, while you're kind of looking that up in your Bible on your app, uh, let me pray as we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time together today. Thanks for the conversation and the, and the fellowship uh, over breakfast today, for the opportunity to connect with some people we haven't talked with in a little while. Thanks for the presence of your Holy Spirit in this place, and um, we ask that you would just anoint our time together. May our uh, thoughts come across clearly. May our minds and hearts be open to what you have for us, and may we act accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 17. Jesus said this. Here's here's the verse. It's verse uh, 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. So Jesus looks at the people he loves the most, which you're like, he had people he loved the most, but he had people he spent time with the most. He says, let me, give you a, let me give you a heads up about life. Eventually, you're going to be prone to stumbling over something. And when you stumble over something, it's because you didn't see it, right? If we saw it, we wouldn't stumble over it. We'd walk around there to climb over it or whatever. Jesus says, I just got to give you a heads up. As you go along in your life, as great as all this has been in these last few years have been great, but things that cause people to stumble, those things that will potentially cause you to stumble, they're going to be there. So expect that. They're going to be in your way. And in the Greek, and, and don't you love it when I say in the Greek, like I'm a Greek scholar, because <laughs> I took like half a year of Greek in like 1984, and I didn't, just couldn't grasp it, and so I... I don't know Greek. I'm just interested in full disclosure, okay? But I like to read the insights of people that do because I discovered that fairly on in my college experience that there are lots of Greek scholars out there who have written their thoughts in English. So why would I put my effort into learning a language I will never speak and hardly ever read? So I love to read the insights of people who, who do know Greek. Here's what I've learned about this passage. In the Greek, they often put the most important words first in the sentence, I don't know if we have any Star Wars fans in the room, but this might be where Yoda speak comes from. <laughs> and you think I just made that up. Don't right now, but Google that later. Just Google Yoda speak Greek. There's this, there's a subculture of a subculture of a subculture that has made this argument <laughs> that this is where Yoda speak comes from. Do you know who Yoda is? How many of you know who Yoda is? How many of you, no, let me see. You know who Yoda is? Uh, so I want to know who doesn't know. Okay. Um, I know who he is. <laughs> Okay, I, I know. 
I know. That's because we lived protected childhoods, you and me. Uh, <laughs> so we've been living under a rock for 25, 30, 40, 40 years. Uh, I have a picture of Yoda. He's a fine-looking dude. Um, what? Don't mess with me today. <laughs> wow. So I'm just discovering who the nerds are in the room. That's cool. But I've never, just interest, full disclosure, I've never seen a Star Wars movie. Uh, they just don't interest me. I'm not that much of a movie watcher in general. Um, and so don't be offended. This never did it for me. And um, don't be mad at me. Some of you, I just lost you. I know. And you're like, oh, how can you? You probably don't like some of the things I like. So... <laughs> I must admit, I have seen every episode of The Office, and I figured out pretty quick that Michael Scott and his girlfriend Holly were speaking in Yoda with each other. I figured that out pretty early on. Did you, you're like, no way, that makes sense now. Okay, that's what it was. So. Anyway, it has nothing to do with anything. I was talking about something important. Um, Yoda, that's what I was talking about. Yoda was the Grand Jedi Master, and Yoda is, is created with all kinds of wise and memorable quotes in the movie franchise, not all of them that you see on Facebook were actually spoken by him. Uh, so do your research. Don't be led astray. Anyway, Yoda speaks, and I don't know, any grammar nerds in the room? Rachel? Okay, got a, four of us. Um, Yoda speaks in an object-subject-verb sentence structure, which is backwards from the way we normally speak. For instance, Yoda said things like, truly wonderful, the mind of a child is. Okay. Powerful you have become, the dark side I sense in you. Yes, you're like, ah, patience you must have. When you look at the dark side, careful you must be. Impossible to see, the future is. So anyway, trying really hard to make a connection between Yoda and Koine Greek. Uh, (laughs) Koine Greek often puts the most important word of a sentence first, for emphasis. So the transliteration, or the literal translation, of this verse would say, impossible it is, now you're like, oh, I do hear Yoda in that, impossible it is for stumbling blocks not to come. That's what Jesus said. That's what he emphasized in the way that he spoke. And you need to know, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how long your parents have been Christians, or how many generations of Christians are in your family, Jesus says it's impossible for you to live life without there being things thrown at your feet that have the potential to trip you up. That's going to happen. And these words in verse 1, things that cause people to stumble, literally means a trap, something that traps you. And Jesus uses it figuratively, but he's talking about those things, those desires, those relationships, whatever, that blindside us. And the next thing we know, something happened, something's happened to our faith. Next thing we know, something's happened to our intimacy with God. Next thing we know, we're still coming to church most of the time, but we're not quite as involved as we used to be. Next thing we know, our heart's not really into it. Next thing we know, it's been months since we've read our Bible, or it's been months since we've really prayed anything beyond, you know, God, get me out of this mess. Things that cause people to stumble, or it's anything that leads us to act contrary to a proper course of action or a set of beliefs. This isn't new information to most of us. In fact, if you grew up in church and you have your own own version of this, because although you grew up in church somewhere along the way, you probably stumbled out of church. That's the story for a lot of people. And some of the things, I'm curious, any of you grow up in church and stumble away from church for a while before you came back? Yeah, look at that. 
Some of the things that cause us to stumble and drift away from God, listen to this, are in and of themselves actually good things. So the thing I want you to hear today, as smart as we all are and as mature as we all are as followers of Christ, as knowledgeable as you are about the Bible, as many scripture verses as you can quote, and as involved as you are in stuff around church, and as involved as we are in as spiritual and all that, in spite of all that, Jesus says it's impossible for you to get through life without at some point in your life, without something being thrown in your way that has the potential to cause you to stumble. I'll give you a couple examples. Sometimes it's ideas. You go off to college. We used to say you go off to college. Now it's more like you make it to eighth grade. Somebody presents you with some new ideas that your parents have no answer for. New information. It causes you to stumble. Caused you to stumble right out of church and away from belief and maybe even away from faith in God. Some of you, that's your story. For most of us, when we think about our history and the things that caused us to stumble or to stumble away, it was people. It was a different set of friends with different values. In fact, some of you have friends right now. Be careful. And you're here. And they're not. And they're not in any church anywhere this morning. These are the people that you've allowed to have a voice and influence in your life. And if you're honest, they're kind of a stumbling block for you right now. Or maybe you're in love or you're in a relationship or maybe you've moved in and there's some tension and you prefer to avoid the topic when you're here with church friends. The truth is that person, that relationship could be the thing that has or will cause you to stumble. And I know you're thinking, well, not me, not me. No, I would never abandon God. I love Jesus. I will always serve him. I will always listen to Caleb and I will always be involved in the church and I will never abandon my faith. I will always have a personal relationship with God. There are some people in this room, just let me tell you, who would love to sit down with you and tell their story because it looks a lot like yours up to this point and eventually they stumbled. Another thing that has enormous potential to cause us to stumble is wealth or money. And you're like, oh, great, I'm all, I, I get a pass on this section because I, <laughs> yeah. You've heard the term deceitfulness of, rich, of riches. Ever heard that? The deceitfulness of riches. Jesus said that in the parable of the sower. Do you know what the deceitfulness, it's hard to say, deceitfulness of riches is? That if I have money, if I have a certain amount of money, if I have certain things that money can buy me, then I can achieve a certain level of security because I think money can get me that. And then I will be happy. And then I will be satisfied. And then I can sleep at night. This is the deceitfulness of riches. Here's the deal. With wealth comes opportunity. And with opportunity come options. And I know you're thinking that you're exempt from this right now because you're not wealthy. No, 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 no. The average American income is just under $40,000 a year. Do a little math real quick. And you're like, ooh. I'm above average. Cool. Some of you would love to be average. That's cool too. It's $105 a day. Just figured out where you fit on this scale, didn't you? The average American makes $105 a day. They don't keep $105 a day. That's, that's before the government dips in. But That's the average American. 70% of the world's population... You're like, oh, good, you're going here. Yeah, I am. 70%, 70% of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day. Don't we spend that at the convenience store and for our coffees? 
and Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> Newsflash, Dunkin's coffee costs more than Starbucks. Anyway, sorry, that was just an unpaid, unpaid endorsement. I don't know where that came from. I was going to buy, we were out of decaf coffee yesterday for church. I know you're like, decaf coffee, what's the point? But there are some of us who try to live Christian lives. So, um, so, so there, we were out of decaf coffee, so I went to buy some, and I grabbed a Dunkin', because I know people like Dunkin'. I understand where I live. It was a dollar more than the same amount of Starbucks. You know what I bought? Starbucks. Absolutely. Anyway. <laughs> 70% of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day. I was trying to make a point. 50%, let's go a little bit further, 50% of the world's population, half, that'd be like splitting half of this room, okay? Half live on less than $2.50 a day. Now you're not getting your coffee. 1.3 billion, I know those are big numbers, we can't even get our minds around it. nearly four times the population in the United States, lives on less than $1 a day. But Americans, less than 5% of the world's population, we think the world revolves around us, less than 5% of the world's population, we live on $105 a day. And I know you want to compare yourself to your neighbors and your coworkers and so-and-so and with someone sitting a few seats away from you and you try to park in a certain place in the parking lot so you don't have to sit, park by that car. Let, let's look at the bigger picture. If you live in a house, if you live in an apartment with walls and a roof, if you drive a car, if you are vaccinated against any diseases, if you drink clean water, if you wear shoes, you are wealthy. One of the problems with poverty is the lack of options and lack of opportunity. And with wealth comes options and opportunity. I love this verse in Proverbs 30. It says, keep falsehood and lies far from me. We're like, yes. Then he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. And we're like, what? (laughs) Give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? That's a stumbling block. Wealth is a distraction because it brings options. Wealth is one of those good things that has the potential to become a stumbling block. So I'm not saying wealth is bad. I'm just saying it, is, it has the potential to be a stumbling block. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were at a pastor's conference in Boston. And uh, I tell you what, if you've never attended a pastor's conference, you have no idea the level of cool that goes on there. But we were at a, <laughs> at a pastor's conference in Boston. And the topic was uh, in one session was church attendance, or more specifically, and we've talked a lot about this in the last couple of years, this phenomenon that people who attend church regularly, which would be all of you, are attending church less often, which would be some of you. And I won't just look at my notes right now. Uh, <laughs> It is, it is, a, it is a, a culture-wide phenomenon that, and, and New England doesn't lead the nation in many ways, but in this one we are, that people who consider themselves regular church attenders are attending church less often. And research shows that one of the driving factors is wealth. It's prosperity. Because with money comes more options. More options for our kids. More options for our entertainment. More options for our leisure more options for travel. Let's move on. The flip side of this would be hard times. So if having more than we need is a stumbling block, hard times are a stumbling block too. A hard time can be a stumbling block. You ever been there? Because difficult times ding our faith, don't they? Difficult times make us wonder, has God given up on me? They cause us to wonder, is God even there? If he's there, is he listening? 
Is he aware? If he's aware, does he care? Difficult things and difficult times can be a stumbling block. But Jesus' point is this. He doesn't really tell us what they all are. He just says, look out. It is impossible for you to get through life without things being thrown in your way that have the potential to cause you to stumble. And I don't think I have to convince you of that because a lot of us have lived enough life to know that we've stumbled, that we are prone to stumble, that the least little thing, when we can't see it, can cause us to stumble. So let me ask you this question, and then we'll move on. Do you think it's possible that there's something out there that could cause you to stumble out of a growing relationship with Jesus Christ? How many of you think there's something out there that could cause that to happen? Do you think there's anything out there that could cause you to stumble away from your values, away from the things you're committed to, It doesn't really matter how you answer that question, by the way, because the answer is yes, because Jesus said so. I mean, do you think there are things that are set in front of your middle schoolers or your teenagers or your college-age children that could cause them to stumble away from their faith, stumble away from their values, stumble away from the things that you've tried to teach them? Do you think that's possible? I think we sit in church sometimes, and you listen to your pastors up here talking about stuff and saying, you know, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, look out. This could be a stumbling block. Be careful, pay attention. And we'll be like, well, that's not going to happen to me. Like, dude, I'm fine. I'm in church. Look, see, I'm here most of the time, unless I got something better to do. But for every, I got better options. For every single one of us, there is something out there. And it has, I tell you what, if it's thrown in our direction at at an inopportune time, it has the potential to take us out when it comes to our faith, to take us out when it comes to the uh, intimacy in our relationship with God, to take us out when it comes to our effectiveness for God and when it comes to our reputation. And Jesus promises that, hey, these things are going to come. It is impossible it is for you to completely avoid these things that cause people to stumble. So here's why this is important as it relates to my desire, my dream for all of us to be connected in circles. It is easy to stumble out of church. I'll just, I'm going to give you something, that just, just a little number that we, you know, we, we, we track people that attend church here. And if that offends you, I'm sorry, I should have told you that two years ago. But uh, we do, we track. And, and we, that's why somebody, a couple people in the room know everybody in the room, kind of. And we don't track numbers, we track people. And so we look at patterns. And in the two and a half years that we've been doing this, we've had nearly 400 people that we've entered into our system by name. That's not including all the guests that don't come, enough, come back enough for us to put their name in the system. I would say it's closer to 500, given that information. I just want you to know, it's, we don't have 500 people here today. It's really, really easy to stumble out of Sunday church attendance. All of us can probably tell a story about a stage in our lives when we stumbled out of church. Because it's easy to do. I've seen some good things cause people to stumble out of church. Things like work and the lake. I mean, God created the lake. You should enjoy it. Youth sports. Work. Camp. The races. School. Work. Mud runs. Family obligations, work. It is so easy to let good things cause us to stumble. Which makes it easy to stumble out of belief. Some misinformation, bad experience, 
too many distractions, the wrong influences. It is easy to stumble out of faith. It's not a very long journey from stumbling out of Sunday morning to stumbling out of a relationship with God. It's easy to stumble out of that relationship because, you know, you're like, I don't really, I don't read my Bible as much as I used to, but, you know, and I, I read it a lot and I know a lot about it. And I don't pray as much as I used to. And I don't go to church as much because, and I don't serve as much as I used to because I got, you know, a lot of stuff going on there. But here's the thing. It is almost impossible to stumble out of community. Almost impossible. In fact, I would argue that it's impossible to stumble out of community. You've got to run away from community if you want to leave it. Because community, by nature, is going to come after you. It's almost impossible to stumble out of a group of like-minded, connected people who are doing life together, and you're praying together, and you're asking the difficult questions together, and you're in God's Word together, and you know about the details of each other's life. I'm telling you, it's next to impossible to stumble out of that because it's, it's relational. And people are paying attention to what's going on in your life. That's why it's so important that you're in some kind of regular, predictable, even structured. And here's the thing. You're like, I don't like structure. Yes, you do. You don't know when to go to work without structure. You don't know when to go to the dentist without structure. You don't know when to change your oil without structure. Our lives, you don't know when to make your mortgage payment without structure. We live our lives with structure. We're, this is the way humans work. So don't resist a, a small group environment just because it's structured. Because I'm telling you, it's almost impossible to stumble out of community. The wisest man who ever lived other than Jesus was King Solomon. Solomon said a lot of incredible things that he didn't apply to his own life. In fact, Solomon gives us the reason that he messed things up. He didn't take his own advice. What he said was extremely wise and extremely practical and extremely important, and then he became a case study for what happens when we don't do the things that Solomon said to do. And before you get too critical of Solomon, most of us at some time or another have been guilty of the same thing. Here's what Solomon said. He said this in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 4. You want a real pick-me-up this afternoon? No, wait for a rainy day and read Ecclesiastes. (laughs) No, don't. I would encourage you to read Ecclesiastes in community with another believer. That's different. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9, he says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. What's that mean? This is really cool to me. That even 3,000 years ago, they recognized that one person can do one person's work. But if you put two people together, they can actually do the work of more than two people. That's synergy. There's a synergy that happens. You put two oxen together, they can pull the load of at least three times the load of one ox because of the principle of synergy, which is the creation of a whole that's greater than the simple return of the simple sum of its parts. Solomon begins this discussion by saying, okay, two people, two oxen, two anything, are better than one because they have a good return. You have a better return on your labor. Then he says this, verse 10 of Ecclesiastes 4, if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. So you're walking side by side with someone and one of you falls down, you can help each other up. If you're walking with someone, there's someone there to help you. Here's the contrast. He says, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Pity the one who falls, and when they fall, there's no one there to help them up. In my world, in the world of uh, church leadership and pastoral ministry, and aside from illness and death, the most difficult uh, phone calls or emails or whatever, or text messages that we get, are when people reach out and say, I need someone to help me. 
I need someone to help me with my teenager. I need someone to help me with my husband. I need someone to help me with my wife. Our marriage is in trouble. I, I need help with a friend. He's drinking too much. He's abusing drugs. He, 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 you know, he, there's something going on there with another married person. I need help. Someone I love stumbled. They're lying in the ditch. They've stumbled away from God, away from faith, maybe stumbled into a self-destructive uh, behavior. Somebody I love has stumbled. Will you help me? And the first thing I want to know is, are you connected to a group of Christ followers? Is there a circle of Christ followers in your life or around this person? And here's why I want to know that. Because after doing the small group thing for over 25 years, here's what I've learned. That when a teenager or a 20-something or a husband or a father or a wife or a mother or an individual is connected to a group of believers in a circle, we know there's someone there to help them up. That's why I'm always asking the question, are you connected to other believers? It isn't to feed some program in our church. We don't even have a small group program. 99 times out of 100, the answer is no, and I kind of already knew that or I wouldn't be asked this question, but because if the answer had been yes, they wouldn't have to call me because someone in their circle would have already come along to help them up and to pick them up out of the ditch. Solomon was the, the richest and wisest and most powerful man in the world, and he stumbled himself, and no one was there to help him up because he was so wealthy and so powerful, and he becomes so autonomous and so isolated, he didn't allow anyone to speak truth to power. He had it all figured out. No one had access to him. And the wisest man in the world says, pity the person who stumbles and falls and has no one there to pick them up. The tragedy in the life of the church is for men and women and teenagers to just be doing life and thinking, well, that's nice, I'm glad that hurt works for you and it's helpful for you, but I don't need that. I've been a Christian a long time. I've read lots of books. I haven't missed church in 27 and a half years. I used to teach Sunday school. I don't really need that anymore either. Uh, it sounds great for some people. They should have that experience. This is, this is, this is great. I, I can think of people who would really benefit from what you're talking about, Todd. But I don't really need that because, first of all, I don't really have time for that. I'm a very busy person. I'm very busy. I have a job, and I, like to, I have to sleep some and eat. And I have kids, and I come to church most Sundays when it's convenient. And I just don't have time. And then they stumble and they fall. And there's no one in their life who has the integrity of relationship, who has access to them, who's doing life with them, that can come alongside and say, I noticed you're struggling. I noticed you, you kind of stumbled away here. Let me help you. Here's the deal. When people stumble morally, they don't necessarily want to be helped right? <laughs> if you've ever been in that kind of situation with somebody, when, when people stumble out of their marriage, they don't always want to be helped back up. No, 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 thanks. Leave me alone. Appreciate your concern, but I'm fine. I'm, I'm kind of liking it right here. I like it down here in the ditch. It's great. Smells nice. I go to somebody else. When we stumble, we don't even want people to help us. Solomon says, pity anyone who stumbles and has no one to help them out because they're not connected to anyone who has access, who has the relational connection, who even knows what's going on and who can, say, who can see through the facade and see through the act and who can say, you know, uh, you may not want my help right now, but we're just going to stand here, okay? We're just going to wait for you. We're just going to come around you. And, and we're, we, we aren't going to let you stay down, but if you want to spend some time in the ditch, we're just going to be standing right here. We aren't going to leave you here long term, but if you've got to spend a little time there, uh, we're here when you're ready to invite us in. Because the truth is, when you stumble, 
what you need the most is what you want the least. Right? When you stumble, what you need the most is what you will desire the least. When, this, when you stumble the, because things got bad and your faith took a ding, when you stumble because you got distracted and you got involved with someone you shouldn't have gotten involved with, when you stumble like most Americans who have so much and so many options and so many opportunities and you work so hard to keep up and to maintain your image, the last thing you want is for someone to stop and help you up. But it is the thing that you need the most. In my, uh, in my, uh, my story is pretty dramatic, of course, as those of you who know, I was born in the church nursery and uh, graduated from Sunday school early. But anyway, in my, here's what this looked like for me. I know you're going to be like, that's really lame, but it was kind of a big deal for me. In the first couple of years of marriage, um, Dad and I thought it would be cool to start uh, a Christmas show in our church. And uh, it was cool. Just a couple of years, it had grown to a three-night performance, had a huge budget, attracted hundreds of people. We met with our team the first time each year in April uh, to decide on a theme and a timeline for preparation for our Christmas show. And by September, we were into rehearsals. And in the third year of the show, uh, I, at one point, I'd spent 60 out of 63 nights at the church. Um, we had an infant, been married uh, three years. So I was at the church 60 out of 63 nights working on set design and set construction and auditions and rehearsals and tech stuff and whatever else we could dream up. And somewhere in the middle of that, one of my, one of my closest confidants approached me, and he just said, and he wasn't involved in this whole thing, he wasn't involved in this production at all, and I don't know, he was there for some kind of meeting or playing basketball or something, and he says, uh, Todd, you need to go home. And I'm like, what? I'm work, working on something super important here. You know, I've got to get these sparkly things just right. I'm, this is super important. He's like, you've been here so many nights, you've lost track and it's gotten ridiculous and it's unhealthy and you need to go home and you need to take your wife out to dinner or something. Here's 20 bucks, take her out to dinner. And I was ticked. Because this guy who was supposed to be my friend, this guy who wasn't even involved in this thing that was so important to me, I, w- I was not happy with his input. And I didn't go home. And it was stupid. And I resented his words for quite a while, and I resented his lack of involvement, which I saw as a lack of support for me, and I resented his audacity. I mean, yeah, we were good friends, and I respected him, and all blah, blah, but what, what business did he have to get involved in my personal life like that? I didn't invite the conversation. I didn't ask him what he thought about the schedule I was keeping, you know, in turn expecting other people to keep as well. I didn't ask for his help. But eventually, as things often work this way, Alethea and I had a discussion. (laughs) Be quiet. I did not invite that. Leave me in the ditch for a minute. (laughs) And I discovered, through my wife's wisdom, that my friend was right. Oh, we continued to do the show for about four more years and with a lot of success, and it grew crazy and, and exponentially, but in the process, we, re, we redesigned the entire prep schedule so that it never got that out of control like that again for me or for anybody else. A few years later, I was able to go to my friend and thank him for speaking truth into my life and for being willing to cause tension in our friendship for the sake of my well-being and for helping me up when I was heading for the ditch. He was holding me accountable before accountability became a church buzzword. Here's my point. 
if you have not laid the groundwork relationally, if you have not gotten significantly connected to some people who can be there for you, to disagree with you, to tell you the truth when you don't want to hear it, who refuse to go away, who refuse to leave you in the ditch, if you don't have those kinds of relationships when things are good, Solomon says, pity anyone who doesn't have that because when you need it, you're not going to want it. And when you need it, you're not going to seek it out. And when you need it, you're not going to initiate it. That's why we want you to be connected because the best preparation you can make for the inevitability of stumbling blocks is to be connected relationally. Because you can stumble out of church attendance on Sundays. You can stumble out of your quiet time. You can stumble out of an attitude of worship. You can stumble out of spiritual disciplines. You can stumble relationally in your marriage and with your kids and with your parents and with your coworkers and with your extended family and with the people that you used to sit next to in church. You can stumble in all those areas, but it's next to impossible to stumble away from biblical community where you are connected to other Christ followers in a significant, meaningful way. Parents, since the kids aren't in the room, well, maybe the, I guess the high school kids are the Middle schoolers are in the queue today. As a parent of a 24-year-old married man and a 19-year-old college sophomore, you're like, how is that possible? You're so young. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is, uh, this is strong and this isn't necessarily Bible. This is just me talking, okay? So that's my disclaimer. You are crazy, crazy, if you are missing the opportunity of a lifetime to have your children and your middle school students and your teenagers plugged into one of our children or youth ministries here. If you're missing that opportunity, you're crazy. And if you're not making that a priority in the life of your kids and your family, because essentially what we've developed for children all the way, like, starts with our, with our preschoolers and continues with our elementary kids and today in the queue with our middle schoolers and for our high school students, what we've created essentially for all these kids are small groups. These ministries either break into small groups or their environments are small enough that they function as small groups where everyone can know everyone else's name, where they can know each other and be known. They know that they kind of get to know the details of one another's lives. I'm telling you, by the time your kids hit seventh grade, if they're not plugged in, it's almost impossible to get them plugged in. And it's not our fault if you're not helping them lay the groundwork. When your kids stumble, you know this, they don't want to listen to you. So who are they going to listen to? I mean, pity the eighth grader, pity the junior, pity the senior in high school who stumbles and has no one to help them up. What we really want for, all, for you and your kids and for all of us for every generation, what we really want is for you to be connected, for you to have, have significant growing connections with other Christ followers. It doesn't really matter to us where or how that happens. We don't have to structure all of that. Uh, it does have to be intentional. It just matters that it happens and that it's meaningful and that it's growing and that the relationship revolves around Jesus. So we're working on fleshing out some ideas for what that means for us, what exactly that might look like in the next few weeks and months. And we're more convinced than ever that circles are better than rows. We are equally convinced that the way we've always done it is no longer the most effective way to do it. In fact, I'm so convinced that circles are better than rows that if you've got, you got an option, because we're all wealthy Americans, if you've got a better option on Sunday, take it. It's cool. 
as long as you're connected in a circle somewhere, as long as you have an environment where you regularly sit down face-to-face and do life with people. Listen, I love Sunday mornings. Some of us love what happens here on Sunday mornings. We think it's awesome. We're always wanting to make it better, more impactful, more memorable, more welcoming, more engaging, and all that. But listen, stumbling blocks are going to come, and when they do, you won't have any desire to come sit in rows because when it comes to stumbling blocks, sitting in rows is pointless. There has to be somebody who loves you so much, who is so connected to you that they feel comfortable standing beside you, speaking truth into your life, correcting you when you're wrong, encouraging you when you need that, helping you out of the ditch. Better yet, helping you avoid the ditch altogether. And when I look around this room, I know there are people here who have done exactly this for other people because I know their stories. I know you've basically, you've basically done interventions You've basically said, we're coming in. We see the direction that you're heading, and we're not letting you get away. We're not letting you end up in the ditch. We've, you, you've done all kinds of things. You've, you've said some really difficult things to the people that you're connected with that way. You've sacrificed time and energy. You've even sacrificed the tension in that relationship, and you're like, bring it on if that's what it takes. But while you're down, we're not going away. And you've, some of you have lived this and seen the power of this. You've been on either side or both sides, and you know that sitting in rows in church on Sunday is a good thing. But it's not everything. It just doesn't meet the need when you've stumbled and you're lying in the ditch wondering if anybody will notice. Stumbling blocks are inevitable. Impossible it is to avoid them forever. The question is, who's going to be there with you? Who's going to be walking with you when they come? Who are you going to offer support to when they're heading to the ditch? Because you're thinking, I don't really need that right now. I feel really grounded. Like, I'm in a really good... Well, maybe you're the one then who needs to be in, in relationship intentionally like that biblical community for the sake of somebody else. Because pity the person who stumbles and has no one to help them up. So I've been asking all kinds of questions lately, kind of myself and anybody that'll listen, and uh, thinking about the importance of biblical community and the, the significant connections that I've had in my life and, and I've seen happen in the life of our church. And as we're kind of getting ready for whatever comes next in our connecting environments in our church, I've been wondering things like, what if we could create environments where real relationships with God and with one another could grow every time that we gather? What, I mean, what, if, what would that look like? What if all kinds of people from different stories who really have nothing else in common could gather in those kinds of environments to hear inspiring stories and engage in conversation on a regular basis? What if we gathered with one another to discuss topics about, that are relevant to our lives, to spend lots of time in guided conversation and experience a spiritual moment where God reveals truth to us through the life of somebody else? Is it even possible for a church our size to create environments where people can fully expect to grow closer to God every time they're there? Is it possible for church to be known as the place where we grow in our relationships? Whether you recognize it or not, or whether you think you're a relational person or not, we all crave relationships. We're wired that way. That's the image of God in you. We want to be known. We want to contribute to the conversation. And he, but here's the deal, listen. Faith in God develops much like other relationships. 
So if you're, you know, some of you in this room are, are fairly new to your relationship with God and you're new to the scripture and you're rediscovering it maybe for the first time in a long, long time, or maybe it's brand new to you and you want to just be there. You want to just like put it in high gear and get there. Listen, faith in God develops much like any other relationship. It's not a strict linear process. It's like other human relationships. It's messy. It's filled with ups and downs and twists and turns, uh, lots of forward and backwards. Um, God, our Heavenly Father, is real. He's alive. He's active in our world. He is ultimately, by nature, relational. And faith comes to life through relationships. I hope, I hope you'll give this some serious consideration about what this means for you. I hope you'll talk with your spouse and with your family because... I mean, I know you're busy and figure out where you can carve out of your calendar so you can make meaningful relational connection in a small group of priority for your life. I hope, I hope you'll have that conversation, maybe over lunch. And as we, those of us in leadership um, and those who've expressed an interest in this, if we, as we explore this with intentionality over the next few weeks, um, I hope you'll be a part of the conversation. Uh, we're going to get to work. We've already been at work for the last few weeks kind of talking with some people about this to reimagine and reinvent and, and create relational environments where we can experience God, where we can meet practical needs uh, in our community, in our church community, in the community that we live in, where we can provide fellow Christ followers with meaningful ministry opportunities in the lives of one another, or the lives of people that we maybe work with and do life with, and maybe in the process, even close the back door of the church. Because it's hard to stumble away from community. So anyway, I don't really even know how to close this. I know it's, wow, it's, wow, it's really time. Um, I know for us, um, we've pulled the plug on our group as uh, we've known it for, that Alethe and I have led for 20 years, so that we could focus on a leadership development environment that we've been dreaming of and working on for several months, and we got the ball rolling on that, but we aren't even sure what that's going to look like long term. So I don't want you to think that, oh, I've got an agenda, and I've got it all figured out, and I know where you need it, and I've got a, you know, a, a rubric here and a matrix where we can slot you in and crunch all your data, and that's where you need to end up. Uh, we're just kind of figuring this out as we go. Um, but I know we believe, Alethe and I believe, that one of the byproducts of our involvement with uh, small groups, the people we've done small group with, with a leadership development project will be the opportunity for meaningful connection for biblical community among the participants of that group, whatever that group is. Um, we, know this, we know this changes us, some of our former group members out in the cold, so we're determined to figure that out too. But listen, if you've been in a group of some kind in the past, in this church or in another church, it was a community group, it was a Bible study, it was a men's group, a women's group, whatever, and you had a bad experience... So what? I mean, get over it. Ever had a bad haircut? I have. Didn't stop getting haircuts. Ever had bad service at a restaurant? Didn't keep me from going to restaurants. Didn't go back to that one. No. That's not always true. Bad things happen all the time. Deal with it. Move on. Do whatever it takes to get into intentional, relational, maybe even structured environment with other believers. Just do it. And don't give up on the process because you're like, well, I don't know. I tried like four groups and it wasn't, they weren't the right environment. It just wasn't the right fit. The people, they're not my people. So, so glad Jesus didn't have that attitude. That's all I'm going to say. 
don't give up on this because if you had one bad experience because you tried to connect with one group at some time and it didn't work out and they turned out to all be weirdos, you know, you're like, okay, every group's got one or two weirdos, but they were all weirdos, you know, where you decided to keep all your relationships with church people at a level where it can be maintained with a surface conversation before and after church on Sunday. Wow, good for you because, you know, this environment, as great as it can be, if this is the basis for your relationship with other Christians, that's kind of sad to me. In the, in the words of Solomon, pity. So you know their names and you kind of know where they live and where they work and what they think about the weather this week and, and what you think the Red Sox will do today. That's great. Ooh. Oh, by the way, don't count on those people that you have surface conversation with on Sunday for 30 seconds over coffee to help you when you stumble. Oh, did I tell you we do have an agenda for your life? I just thought I should be open about that because, I mean, I... I've been around long enough to see the the original Amway presentation, so I just want to get right to it. I do have an agenda for your life, okay? (laughs) We want you in circles. We want you to be so relationally connected that you spend a significant amount of time on purpose in a circle environment where you're face-to-face with other Christians. Might be in your own living room, might be at your kitchen table, might be around the fire pit, it might be over coffee, might be on the golf course, might be on the boat. You get the idea. It's in circles and significant conversations where those connections are made. And when stumbling blocks are placed in your path and you're in that environment, when you're down, when you're heading in a, towards the ditch, someone will be there. Someone will be there to head you off or to help you when you fall. Today, I uh, attached some cards to the connect card that's in the seat back in front of you. There's not one for every chair, but there should be one for every household. On those cards, I, there's a statement at the top. It just says, I would like to connect in a small group, because I know everybody would like to do that, because it's been such a persuasive talk today. And then just some questions about what kind of environment, when, where, um, who are your favorite people, uh, who are the Star Wars people that you don't want to hang out with, uh, child care, um, what the emphasis of the group might be, and so on. You'll find the card looks like this. Here's what I'd like you to do. Take a minute to fill that out. If you have to talk it over with your spouse or with your family, you might want to do that before you leave the property today because if you take this and put it in your car, we all know where it's going to end up. So uh, there's a little basket on the stool on this side of the curtain. Leave those there. We're going to follow up with you, and we're going to do everything we can to get you networked and connected with some people who can help you uh, either plug in or create your own environment where you can, where you can connect. Wow, I've gone really long, and I, I'm going to owe a big apology to the children's ministry people. Um, I want to play a song. And I, I could drop this, but I really want to play this song. This is a song from an old album from a CD that was released in 1995. It's an oldie, then you know what I mean. Uh, but it, it was released kind of in the middle of my youth ministry days, and I still believe it's the greatest Christian album ever released. It's the gold standard for me, which is why I don't. I can't tolerate much Christian music today because this is the best. Uh, Studies show that uh, we form our musical tastes by the time we're 26, between 22 22 and 26 years old. Think about that. That's the case for you. Because if you were 22 in 1966, that was the best music ever made, right? Yeah. So for me, right in my sweet spot, best music ever made. Um, Sorry. Some of you are Toby Mac fans. Some of you like Toby Mac. Some of you are Newsboys fans. Toby McKeon and Michael Tate got their start in a little band. They started in 1987 while they were students at Liberty University. Anyway, they sang this song is from their 1995 Grammy-winning album, Jesus Freak, by DC Talk. 
This song is uh, What Have I Stumbled? With a love 